This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you were here a couple nights ago, hope you were, we were chatting with Dan McKinnon, who's the head of Hamilton Public Works. He's in charge of a lot of the stuff, a lot of the things you have to fix up and that are operational for the city, streets and things like that. And we were talking that night mostly, we started and we're talking mostly about Main Street West, which right now, as roads go, is a disaster. There are potholes along that stretch in front of McMaster Hospital that could swallow a smart car. You do not want to be driving along there too quickly if your suspension is not Hummer equivalent. Anyway, there are other roads, though, around this city. Lots of other roads that are also having issues. And other stuff. We know that there was a rock slide the other day. There was a sinkhole the other day. We, last summer, had on the Claremont Access part of the wall caving in. These are things that all cost money. They all cost money if we want to fix them. But where do we find the money when these things are not expected? These are surprises, unfortunate surprises, but surprises. Where do we find the money? How are we going to pay for this? Well, joining me to try to answer this question, a guy that I'm glad he's on here because he's one of the brave ones who's willing to come on and address this topic, Jason Farr, counselor for Ward 2. Sir, how are you tonight? I knew you were desperate when you were getting in touch. I'm good. I'm good, Scott. Well, we, I tell you what, we asked uh, uh, one other counselor who was front and center in the news with this, uh, and he, Aiden Johnson from Ward 1, he was unable to make it. He had another commitment. Um, but, and I asked him first because he, as I say, he was kind of in the, in the middle of this thing because it's in his ward, but y- y- you have something in common with Aiden Johnson. I want to get to that in a minute, uh, which is why I called you. But first of all, council voted yesterday to put $1.4 million down uh, part of council's money, part of the discretionary money that uh, councillors in the old city have in their wards to fix Main Street West. But this is right now really kind of a short-term fix, right? It's a scrape and whatever you call it. A, a, like a, it's a, not a permanent shave fix. Pave. A shave and pave. It's not a permanent fix. It's a short-term, let's just make this so it's not desperate right now, correct? Well, uh, surface treatment is a short-term fix. It's a fairly uh, unique term for the inner city, more of a country road type fix, and that's the most cost-effective fix, and it lasts about 8 to 10 years. Shave and pave, a little longer than that, Scott, maybe 2030 uh, lifespan, and, uh, of course, the full rehab restoration would be uh, the longer term, 50 years, I believe. But um, uh, this this is something that definitely is desperately needed for that particular area. There's no shortage of uh, issues as it relates to uh, the conditions of our roads after this, uh, you know, thaw, freeze, thaw, freeze anomaly that we've seen this year. Right. And, and, and clearly that does have to be done. No one no one would argue with that who's been along that stretch of the road or some other ones. But the point the point I'm making is if you want to do the, the really in-depth permanent job, long-term kind of fix to these things, uh, it's a bigger project, and it will cost considerably more money. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right now, our capital budget, we approved our capital budget, uh, it was December 9th, uh, 2017 for 2018, and that's $236 million total. And almost a quarter of that goes to just roads, roads and 700 k or so to sidewalks. Uh, it doesn't include bridge rehab. That's a separate issue. And then the $34 million we received, roughly approximately $34, $35 million in federal gas tax that we put a, a large chunk uh, towards roads where many other communities who are newer and don't have the aging infrastructure we have uh, tend to allocate most, if not all, of it toward transit. So there, there is a large portion of, uh, you know, a quarter of our capital budget that goes towards this issue. But as you say, Scott, it's, um, it's hard to keep up. We have a, a deficit of over 100 years 
in our uh, city. And we, from a municipal taxpayer standpoint, uh, you know, we know that we can't just rely on the municipality. We need other uh, levels of government and the feds have been talking about it for some time, chipping in in the many, many millions of dollars, particularly as it relates to older cities like ours. And uh, we're, we're hopeful to see, you know, some movement there at some point. Uh, your, your, your parent company, actually, it's funny that, you know, there's two things that were funny, I guess. It's ironic, anyway, about you getting in touch at round five today with me. Number one, I was at Gilbert's Tires <laughs> getting, <laughs> getting two tires replaced myself. So I know the pain. I feel the pain. Uh, and, uh, number two, I, I just recently, I recollected or had read, uh, uh, something that I recollected reading something that Canwest Global had, uh, FOI, the federal report on when this federal funding was coming in the many millions of dollars, in fact, billions of dollars to help, uh, these infrastructure deficits because Hamilton is not unique to Hamilton. Uh, we have some unique issues as it relates to the escarpment, as you mentioned, but we do have a, a road issue that's uh, very prevalent in a lot of older cities. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Back with Jason Farr, counselor for Ward 2. Uh, we're talking about the road repairs, the other repairs that are uh, that are needed to be done. And Jason, Dan McKinnon, who's, the, as I said before, the head of public works, was on here the other day. And one of the comments that he made, which I found really interesting, is that he says, you know, one of the things that Public Works tries to do is get ahead of the curve, anticipate what needs to be done so that they can do the repairs before things break down, because that tend to keep costs down. Difficulty is, with so many things around the city needing repairs urgently and all of a sudden, it makes it very difficult to keep up with all that stuff and to get ahead of that curve. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, Dan, our general manager, is not just talking about roads, it's no. facilities and parks everything else that uh, taxpayers deem as priorities, and there are so many. So, you know, facilities alone, over $500 million in repair deficits. So th- th- there's there's serious uh, deficits in this old city of Hamilton. And again, it's not unique to Hamilton, but there are these challenges, and then you have a limited budget. So you have to meet the challenges and, and you know, you know proportion uh, what finances we have accordingly. And so when you look at roads, one quarter of the capital budget that we approved a couple of months ago uh, is covered. And, and all the rest, all those other capital priorities are, are getting the difference. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And, and like we were saying just before the break, we're hoping, and Ken West, your, your, your global uh, owner, had, had done a freedom of information just a couple of months ago. And, you know, my much of it was redacted, but the the piece that I recall reading was about how, how come it's taken a while for the feds to step up to the plate because we are talking about billions and billions of dollars. You know, it's over a billion in, in the deficit here in Hamilton alone. Yes. And can you imagine the, the rest of the older infrastructures in the older cities and across the nation? It's, it's a major, major issue uh, for a lot of people. And if you don't address it in a big way, it just gets worse, and it becomes exactly as Dan says, more expensive in the long run because all you're doing is repairing instead of being proactive, you're being reactive, and that's at a greater cost to the taxpayer. So while we wait then for the federal government to do something to point some money our way, 
What do we do? Where does the money come from when we have these emergency repairs that aren't in the budget necessarily, that aren't planned for, and you end up with these things? I mean, with this one, with Main Street West, uh, and I, I said off the top that you and Aiden Johnson, Ward 1 Councillor, have something in common. The old city, the, the councillors for the old city have this discretionary amount, some of that that he has that you're able to put to whatever project, infrastructure project you would want to use it for. You're, he was able to take some of that and use it towards this. That helped a little bit. But where does it come from? As this continues on, and there's no reason to think, Jason, that it's not going to continue, that we're not going to have more things fall apart. Where do we find the money to pay for this? Well, good city planning and budget season particularly sets up reserves in the multi-millions of dollars. And in this case, to answer your question, when these emergencies happen, you can you know seek the millions needed or the monies needed, whatever the case may be, from these reserves and fortunately through our budget process if i can give the council of uh, last term and this term a bit of a plug you know we've kept uh, the increase at all-time lows and definitely most competitive in all of ontario so while we've seen tax increases annually in the last seven eight years scott uh, we've also been able to build up our reserves uh, so we have the funds in emergency situations such as uh, the one we're seeing on main street west right now uh, to take care of that, and, and we have the capacity in emergency situations to do it in a timely fashion. We're just waiting for a weather break at this point mm. uh, to take care of that particular issue. So smart budgeting annually, in short, means setting up reserves in the multi-millions of dollars to address these kinds of emergencies, and we have them for the escarpment, we have them for roads, we have them for you know water main breaks and those sorts of things. Well, the and one other thing that I've heard before is, you know what will happen if we can attract businesses to come here, the tax increase, the corporate taxes would also, with the jobs and everything else that comes with it, they would be able to go towards helping create more tax revenue, more money. The tricky part is, how do you attract corporations easily if your city has problems that it's falling apart? And I know that's a general broad statement. I'm not saying everything in the city is falling apart, but it's a tricky thing. It's it's a chicken and an egg thing. How do you get people to come if there are problems? How do you solve the problems if you need people to come to fix them? If it's rhetorical, I could let it slide, but I think the trick is to keep doing what we're doing, number one. I mean, from an economic development standpoint, I mean, it's a totally different interview. I think we're doing all right. Uh, we continue to see the you know best place to invest number one in Canada uh, headlines uh, happening in the last few years and that's a, a, you know a lot of credit to our economic development but uh, you know you can even credit location you can credit uh, technologically uh, uh, you know we're we're above the the herd and, and a number of other great incentive packages that we offer but but absolutely um, people that want to relocate their businesses here are going to be bringing you know, great paying jobs and ultimately new families to the community. And it's those when you get to the trickle down and it's the people that are part of this uh, wonderful economic development renaissance we're seeing that are going to be wanting to live here. We want them to live here. We don't want them to live in Burlington and commute here because they don't like the state of our infrastructure, or the state of our roads. They also want and we're seeing that loud and clear with the Move Ontario plan and our $1.2 billion role that we're playing. They want higher order transit. They want options other than being in their cars or their Hummers, uh, and and, uh, and commuting options uh, are, are a major driver to attract, uh, uh, you know, that kind of investment as well. So we're 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 doing that part, and again, we're getting back to that. We have 236 million in a 2018 capital budget. One quarter of it is directed at roads, but there are quote unquote priorities for for taxpayers, and there are many other priorities. And you know, you mentioned you know Ward One and Two. We have our 
our area rating funds about $1.6 million a year. Ward uh, 1 has a public budget, lets the public decide on how to spend those infrastructure capital dollars annually. I do it uh, $1 million every second year. It's still a public budget. But to find in that process, when you let the public um, engage, um, determine how to spend $1.6 million, or in my case, $1 million every second uh, year in a public budget process, it's about as rare to find roads as the theme or in any way, shape or form uh, shortlisted for a public vote as getting a Heisman winning quarterback absolutely play for free got to cut in Jason <laughs> unfortunately no I got to cut in sadly we're out of time I'm way after time Fair but enough. listen I really appreciate your time today thanks yep. for doing this counselor Jason Farr Ward 2 you're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900 CHML Scott Radley show 900 CHML if you recognize that music, it probably means that you are a gamer of some kind. Video games, computer games, many of you either play or have played. And, you know, some people think, well, computer games, I don't play computer games. I don't play Xbox. I don't play PlayStation. Do you play Candy Crush on your phone? You're a gamer. Say, there you go. Everybody plays games, right? Well, you can now take that level of interest, that passion for Candy Crush, which I'm at about a level 1100 and something right now, which is my uh, admission that I probably shouldn't give. You can now take that and apply it to a university course in gaming. That's true. The history of gaming is being offered through Wilfrid Laurier University. The guy who is running it, the man who is behind this, is Canada's top video game collector. His name is Sid Bolton, and he joins me now. Sid, thanks for doing this today. Hey, no problem, Scott. And I'm glad you identified the fact that people that play games on their phones are actually gamers, because you're absolutely right. Well, I never that never dawned on me until recently, and someone made that point, and I said, yeah, you know what, I guess I am a gamer then. I, I played backgammon earlier this afternoon on my phone, <laughs> and um, there you go. But, you know, the first thing people are going to hear, Sid, when they hear that there is now a university course in gaming is, what, was basket weaving full? Like, this does not sound like it is the highest level of university education that people send their kids to school for. Well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, universities have long offered degrees in uh, the studies of film. And so uh, why not uh, move it into something where today's actual uh, largest industry in terms of entertainment is video games. I mean, video games bring in more money than uh, the, the film industry does. So why wouldn't we, uh, you know, teach uh, our people that are up and coming, you know, about the history of those games, how they're made, uh, what got them started, and, uh, you know, potentially unlocking what is going to uh, be the future of video games as well through looking at the past. Would that be a good comparison? That, like a, a film studies course to a gaming course? Is that kind of the idea of what you're shooting for, the equivalent? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the fact is that today a lot of people that uh, have either started out in one industry or the other end up crossing over. So, uh, you know, for example, a a good friend of mine who I went to high school with, uh, who I grew up with, he, you know, started out, he's he's an animator and he just, you know, wanted to work for Walt Disney and make films and do all that kind of stuff. And uh, now he uh, is a cinematics director on the Call of Duty games. So, you know, and video games weren't something that he was even thinking about when he 
got into that. He, maybe he played Pac-Man. I don't even really remember. But the point is, is that now he's working on, you know, one of the largest video game franchises in the world. And, you know, it started out certainly that he was just interested in, in being an animator and working in that industry. And it just ended up that that's where the jobs were. So that's where he went. And now he, you know, he loves it. So it's, it's quite interesting. My first video game experience, really, my first video game that I owned, I got it for Christmas one time, and I bet you that there's a lot of people who would share this, was Pong. Uh, that was about 100 years ago now. I don't even know how long ago it was. Uh, it actually screwed up our TV set. It was such a rudimentary thing. It burned the image into the TV, so it was permanently etched now in the set. But was there anything actually before Pong, or was Pong the launching of this whole industry? Well, actually, there was uh, games that came well before Pong that, you know, certainly weren't in our homes, but were actually at a university type level. So there was uh, in the 60s, there was something called Computer Space. There was uh, a game that was actually created in the 50s called Tennis for Two, which was actually similar sort of in concept to Pong, but it was actually created on an oscilloscope, which is a device that's used to measure electronic signals and believe it or not, had a screen on it. And so that's actually what somebody created a game on it that kind of inspired Pong. And then even before Pong was an actual product from Atari, there was actually a commercial product called the Magnavox Odyssey that came out in 1972. And that was actually a home, uh, a home console that uh, had a Pong-like experience on it. In fact, uh, Nolan Bushnell, a guy who founded Atari, had actually seen that product, and that is what inspired him to go on and have uh, Pong created and sort of the rest, as they say, is history. So it took until Pong for video games to become commercially popular. But before that, there was definitely some video games. And were these things advanced even for their time, or for their time even, they were pretty rudimentary? Because now we were looking to go Pong. I mean, it's two sticks and a little blip that goes back and forth. But were they complicated things at that time to make? Well, Space War uh, in the 60s uh, was actually, uh, by Steve Russell, was uh, incredibly complex in computer space, uh, which Nolan Bushnell had done as well. Those were very, very complex, in fact, uh, in some ways, and they were uh, almost too complex. In fact, the reason that uh, Nolan had actually said, you know, let's do Pong is because it was so simple, because he had found when he had tried to make an arcade version of this very you know, expensive uh, million-dollar mainframe computer version of a game, uh, he found the only people that liked it were other engineers and people <laughs> like him. So, you know, the average everyday person that would stay at a bar or something having a drink just wanted to play something very simple. And so that's where Pong was born from. It was actually the idea of the simplicity was actually what made it successful. And so, you know, we've obviously grown well beyond Pong, but uh, in terms of getting society to sort of play games, uh, also to have, uh, you know, both genders play games. You know, I mean, Pong is something that both uh, men and women would enjoy, for example. And there's been times where video games have maybe been more skewed towards men, but then we've also had great things like Pac-Man. And, well, let's and get to Pong that stuff, stuff, because by the 80s, by the 80s, this had become a men and women kind of thing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Music from Halo 2, another hugely popular video game. We're talking with Sid Bolton, curator of the Personal Computer Museum in Brantford, and the guy who's going to be teaching a course at Wilfrid Laurier University in the history 
of gaming and it said just before we went to the break we were talking about how there came a time after those early games when computer games video games very much became unisex they became both boys and i'll say men but boys were playing but also girls by the 80s you have pac-man and ms pac-man and frogger and donkey kong and qbert and space invaders and defender and all these games which seem i mean for anyone who was of that era those give you a real warm fuzzy feeling when you think about those games but even then by today's standards, they are really rudimentary games. They are, and that was considered to be sort of the golden age of video games when video games were in the arcade. Yes, they, yes. Um, really, really sort of revitalized the arcade business, um, as it were, and of course, uh, also kind of led to the downfall of the arcade as well, right? I mean, as we were able to improve our technology and bring computers to the home that were just as powerful as stuff that we could have in the arcade, it effectively killed that business as well. So it's kind of interesting. And now, of course, uh, the big question in everyone's mind is sort of are digital downloads going to kill uh, the video game uh, business mm. the way we know it today? And also are things like, you know, we were talking earlier about cell phones and how, you know, if you play games on your phone, you are uh, a gamer. Uh, but is that going to sort of kill the traditional console gaming experience? So these are all questions that we're going to talk about um, as we look back on the history of how the industry got to the point where it is today. Was it around that time, that 1980s era when all these games started coming out that people realized this could be a massive business or was it way before then that people realized this could actually be a lot of money? Well, you know, Don Bluth, who is an ex-Disney animator who created one of my favorite games, Dragon's Lair, he had uh, actually wondered why one of his traditional movies, which was uh, The Secret of Nim that he had animated, why hadn't it done that well uh, in the theaters during the summer of that year that he brought it out? And the reason why is because everybody was in the arcades playing you know, these video games and spending literally billions of quarters uh, on video games. And so uh, that's kind of when the industry was like, you know what, um, maybe we have to take a hard look at whether or not, you know, we're we're doing the right thing. And obviously, there's definitely, you know, room for uh, both forms of entertainment. There are people that, you know, just love to go to the movies, and there's people that love to just play video games. And of course, there's people that love both. So uh, there's no question about it. But I think definitely it was, it was around 1983 or so where people started to say, you know what, this is actually a business that we have to take a serious look at. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but I mean, Warner Brothers, actually owned Atari, um, you know, and sort of bought that early on. So here you're talking about an entertainment company who kind of had the thought that video games were actually going to be uh, something that they needed to invest in. And today, of course, uh, almost every entertainment company has some sort of stake in the video game business. Well, well. to the point, I understand that the company, that it's worth about $6 billion just in the U.S., the the video game business a year now. Now, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but one of them, and I'm hoping you can take a minute or so to tell this story, and I, I know you know this story. Um, I watched a documentary not that long ago, I think it was on Netflix, about what is pretty much universally considered the worst video game ever made, which was an E.T. video game. Can you tell the story of this? Because I found it actually hilarious that this was considered such a horrible failure. So basically, when when E.T., the extraterrestrial, the movie was coming out, uh, everyone knew it was going to be a big uh, hit in Hollywood. And so it was closing in on when it was confirmed that indeed it was big in the theaters. It was the summer blockbuster that year. Uh, basically, you know, Atari was really getting into the licensing game and they had to license some of the big 
um, hits. And they had actually licensed Raiders of the Lost Ark and things like that. So they knew that there was a good combination between uh, movies and uh, video games. And so they made a deal uh, to bring out E.T. Uh, for the holiday season on the Atari 2600, which was kind of the top gaming system at the PlayStation of its time, as it were. And uh, so basically they had uh, made this deal to bring it out, but there was only around six weeks of development time that was available to have the game produced uh, because after the end of the six weeks, they had to get the cartridge manufactured. So there was lead times and they had to be transferred to the stores and so on. And so they were so convinced that this game was going to be a hit uh, no matter what they made the game up. They weren't really thinking, you know, here's a game, let's sell it. It was more like, we have to get this game out. We don't have a game yet. So they had one of their programmers. They said, you know what? If you can do this in six weeks, we're going to give you a big bonus. We're going to send you to Hawaii, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And so that's what happened is that, you know, one of their best game designers, because he had actually, it's kind of funny, you mentioned it's one of the worst games. and It, it isn't the worst video game by, by any stretch of the imagination ever made, but it is, it is pretty poor. And a lot of people ended up returning it to the stores. And in fact, Atari ordered more cartridges than they had video game systems at the time in the anticipation that this game would actually sell systems. And so, yeah, they ordered something like 10 million units. And then, of course, people started sending them back because they couldn't figure the game out. It was difficult. <laughs> uh, children were not having fun. You know, they were just, it was, it was bad. And it's, uh, they ended know, up yeah. burying thousands of them, apparently. Yeah. So they literally had to destroy them. And so what they did was they buried them in a landfill in, uh, New Mexico. New Mexico. And, yep. Yeah. And, and, and the story said, I got to jump in. Cause again, we're, I'm sorry. We're, we're really short on time. I think it's still on Netflix. It's called Atari game over. If you want to watch the game documentary, yeah. it's a pretty uh, interesting. Story. It's pretty funny. Uh, Sid Bull, Bolton. Uh, you can find about him through Wilfrid Laurier through the museum in Kitchener. They're also tied into this if you are interested any in this further. Said, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Uh, if you are interested, as I say, go to Wilfrid Laurier University website. Look up Sid Bolton, S-Y-D Bolton, uh, computer or personal computer museum in Brantford. Look up the museum, all those places. You can find more information. If you maybe want to take a university course in gaming, it's fascinating stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Has Snowmageddon arrived? Bob just called, said down Niagara Welland Way, they're beginning to get some flakes. We're waiting. We're waiting. Jay McQueen has been telling us all day that this is going to be the worst weather event in the history of mankind. The city of Burlington is already in some sort of Burlington-esque lockdown. Mohawk College is shut down. We apparently are going to be under 12 feet of snow by morning. I don't know if it's exactly 12 feet. That may be a slight exaggeration. I'm not sure. But if you're out there and you are seeing flakes, please let us know. Let us know where it's coming from. Let us know it's arriving. I am growing just a tiny bit skeptical because... I've been in this chair more than a few times when we've been having massive storms coming that never come. Anyway, maybe tonight's the night. Maybe tonight's the night. Let us know. If you're out there, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. If you're out there driving around somewhere and there is snow falling, let us know. Ben, you have a report. Brantford is also getting a bit. They're warming up the dog sleds as we speak. Brantford. Now, in the path of Snowmageddon, Hamilton's still dry, still dry here, 
But now Brantford facing the wrath of the winter. All right. Oh, you got another one. Milton Campbellville way. We got a bit more snow coming Milton there, Milton and Campbellville. Hang in there, folks. Milton and Campbellville. Okay. There we go. There's more. The calls now are coming in. The lines are lighting up. People are seeing flakes. This may not be just a rumor. There may actually be snow coming at some point this evening in the greater Hamilton area. So we've got flakes in Welland. We had earlier reports that there may be some precipitation coming up by Highway 6401 area. So if you're driving towards Kitchener, Cambridge, that kind of way, that maybe there was something there up Guelph Way. Uh, now we've got um, you know, a few other spots, Campbellville and Milton. Ben's on the line. i got so many lines lighting up now. Apparently there may actually be something. Anyway, let me get to my story. Then by the end of it, we will get oh, you got another one, Ben. Yeah, actually, the spectator is getting a bit of snow up front, Is that right? The spectator is. Okay, well, let's just actually, I can see the spectator from here. I can't see anything out this window right now, but it's right there if I was to look. All right, as Ben continues to take weather reports, we'll fill you in in a moment. I did want to share this story because this is my favorite story of the week now. Uh, From Iowa. Now, I'd like to know what you would do in this circumstance. There was a... um, a guy who, he owns a recycling store, again, in Iowa. Carroll, Iowa is the name of the actual town. And he owns a recycling store. It's a small recycling, not a store, a, a plant, a facility, and it's a smaller one, privately owned. And his wife was helping him do some work there one evening, and she became convinced that the place was haunted. She became absolutely convinced that the place that where they work, this industry, is haunted because as she's working, sorting cans, she heard, get out of here. Get out of here. Well, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? If you were late at night working in some factory and you started hearing voices whispering, get out of here. Uh, of course, her husband thought she was losing her mind and brushed her off. But then she was back in there. And uh, she heard yelling the next day. Now she's really freaked out. Well, it turns out there was, it was not haunted. It was not haunted. She called the police. She realized this was not a case for the Ghostbusters. This was a case for the police. And when they, when the police came, what did they discover? There was a naked man stuck in the chimney. (laughs) Now, apparently... I love this story. Apparently, he was not whispering, get out of here, in some sort of menacing, ghostly tone. He couldn't expand his chest cavity to get a lot of air, so as loud as he possibly could, he was yelling, get me out of here. (laughs) However, they, they could not retract him back up the chimney, so they had to knock the chimney down to extract him. He had his clothes with him, just not on him. Why was he in the chimney? That part remains unclear. Nobody really knows why he was in the chimney of this factory. But So next time you're at home and you hear what you think are ghostly whispers through the walls, check your chimney. There may be a nude man stuck in there. See, because get me out of here is kind of threatening. That, that's that's kind, of a, kind of a scary thing to be... Having a scary thing to hear, get me out of here, is, is scary. Get, or get out of here is scary. Get me out of here. That's threatened. That's a guy who's scared to death. But, you know, there you go. There's your story for the day. Check for naked men in your chimneys if you 
begin to hear strange voices in your house. Now, Ben, back to the weather reports. Where else do we have precipitation coming down right now? Well, you better start changing Woodstock to Snowstock because they're getting a few centimeters out there. And the Hamilton Mountain, uh, it's not looking like it's going to be a green Christmas this year. No, <laughs> it's lasting that long, is it? Hamilton Mountain beginning. All right, so maybe there's actually something to this. I remain somewhat skeptical. But maybe, because it's all around us now, it's, it's still, you just looked out the window. We got to go. You just looked at the window. Was there anything falling outside world headquarters of 900 CHML here? Not that I could see too bad. Well, we'll we'll keep you updated. If you're out there, let us know. 905-645-3221. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Earlier today, big story that uh, came out of Seattle. You've heard that Seattle has gotten the temporary sort of go-ahead to get an NHL team. They haven't actually been given the NHL team yet. They've been allowed to explore the thing and find out if the market is going to be good enough. I mean, they're getting it. They're not not getting the NHL team. They just haven't actually said yet that it's there. But today they opened up, they did what Hamilton did once upon a time, and they opened up a thing to see how many people would put down down payments for season tickets. Let me bring Rick Zamperin from CHML. You heard him all day today on the air. Uh, By the way, Rick, is it snowing where you are? Uh, it is. I can confirm uh, some uh, snowflakes are falling. <laughs> does that make you, now having just done that, does that make yes. you a weather expert? I am a weather specialist. A yes. weather specialist. I, I can <laughs> confirm a weather system is upon us now. <laughs> uh, let us go to this because uh, I, I don't know what's happening in Seattle weather-wise, probably raining. Um, yes. But they open up the selling uh, the selling the down payments for season tickets for a potential NHL team in Seattle today. And it went bananas. Yeah, you know what? If it's raining in Seattle, it's raining dollars because people were willing to shell out five hundred, upwards of a thousand dollars to put their names down to say, "Hey, uh, once Seattle gets an NHL franchise, I want to be a part of the action. I want to be in that uh, arena which they're redeveloping." And uh, so much so that uh, you know, I think this is a a, uh, um, from a good standpoint an eyebrow raiser to the National Hockey League, because I'm not sure anyone really expected 10,000 seats to be spoken for in 12 minutes and 25,000 total uh, over the course of the day, which is absolutely bonkers. And and, uh, a big portion of that, from what I understand by uh, looking into the story, is that a lot of uh, fans who aren't able or can't afford to go to see the Vancouver Canucks I've come across the board ah. and say, hey, I want to, I want to be a fan of the Seattle team. Ah, interesting. Interesting that the Canadian market that has priced itself so heavily may have actually chased some people to the competition. That is an interesting yes. idea. Which, by the way, was not the case in Las Vegas. I know a lot of people are comparing the numbers that Vegas got in terms of fan interest and, you know, down payments for tickets. Vegas was not open to the Canadian market, but Seattle did open up to uh, to Canadian hockey fans. Well, and Vegas took, uh, I mean, Vegas has proven to be on the ice, certainly, and, and off the ice to a large degree, too, a huge success this year, but they didn't have anywhere near this response. I think it was, it took like 10 days or 15 days to get 5,000 sold. They yeah. eventually got their mark, but um, th- this is, I mean, when I heard these numbers, it was like, wow, I can't, you know, maybe Seattle, I know Seattle's had a great history with the Thunderbirds with junior hockey. I just mm-hmm. wasn't sure it was going to be that big of an NHL market. 
And, and the interesting thing is, so they're redeveloping the, the key arena, and, uh, and we can get into that because it's, it's really uh, a unique way, the way they're doing it, because three out of the four sides of this arena have been designated heritage. So they're having to dig the foundation, redig the foundation in a unique way. But this arena is going to hold upwards of 17, maybe even 18,000 fans. And so 25,000 fans have put their name down. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to those seven or 8,000 fans who won't be able to ultimately get a ticket, I guess. Well, and this is the part of this story. And I thought this when this was going on in Hamilton, because in Hamilton they did this, was it once or was it twice that they did the season ticket drive? I think they did it with Jim Balsley, and I'm sure they did it once before that with... um, Uh, was it with the Ron Joyce group? Once upon yeah. a time, they did it. And at that time, here's the part about it that always makes me skeptical: is that they're asking you to put down a five hundred or thousand dollar deposit on a ticket, which is not an insignificant amount of money, but it's refundable. It's re- it's yeah. a refundable down payment. So, Rick, you and I are sitting in the office, and you hear, "Hey, tickets are going on sale. Uh, I, let's both put down a thousand bucks, and you and I will split a pair of season tickets." And those season tickets are going to cost, I don't know, let's say it's going to be ten grand each for the season, depending where the seat is. You now go home and say to your wife, hey, honey, guess what I just did today? I put down a thousand bucks on season tickets, and if we get this, it's going to cost us fifteen grand. And she says, yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is exactly what would happen in my household. I, well, mine too. And <laughs> so for that reason, I'm always a little skeptical of these things. If you were to say it's a $5,000 down payment, let's say, right. and it's non-refundable unless a team doesn't come. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. once you've put the down payment down, you're buying those tickets. I always wonder what kind of response you would get in that case yeah there certainly would be uh nowhere near twenty five thousand in, in seattle or, or probably any other community aside from maybe hockey crazy toronto but uh, you know I, I i i might step back from that statement because it's not the maple Leafs that would you know if you're adding a second team to the dca but if you're if you're telling fans that listen uh, you got to put down a grand and if it comes you know we're going to hold you to it uh, and if the team doesn't come, then, okay, you can get your money back. Uh, yeah, I think that number would drastically change. And I'd love to know, And I, I mean, I thought that in Hamilton, I think that here. I would think that probably, are there 10,000 of that 25,000 that are legitimately, that will do this regardless? Maybe. And that's not a bad number. No, not at all. And, you know, th- this is also a city, let's not forget, that lost its NBA team, too. So they've had the Seattle Seahawks primarily as their only pro sports kind of venture. Uh, you know, the well, Seattle the Mariners there is, is yeah is, is there, but you know when you lose an NBA team and you're kind of almost teased that you know the SuperSonics are going to come back in one fashion or another, and potentially uh, a National Hockey League team is going to be coming. I mean that generates I think a lot of buzz in the community, and 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 you know you look at other cities across not only the US but Canada as well that have two or three or four major pro sports teams and now you're amongst the heavy hitters so um, you know i think it's it's good news for seattle that they're stepping up to the plate do you think even though and i i think what you said off the top was pretty interesting was pretty fascinating about the idea of vancouver fans who maybe mm. have been priced out of the vancouver market nonetheless do you see this as a good thing potentially for vancouver i think it's a great thing for for a number of fronts uh number one you know rogers arena in vancouver is uh, maybe not necessarily being sold out each and every game but i think having that what would be called the freeway rivalry between seattle and and vancouver i think 
is is only going to amount to good things for for Vancouver because you have that uh, geographical tie with Seattle. Uh, we, we see it in you know the soccer teams with the Whitecaps and, and the Timbers. Uh, you know those two uh, cities. You know look at each other as uh, you know on the same plane. And when they have you know a professional hockey league team uh, that's going to go against each other, I think that that buzz in both cities. I think financially it can work for both cities as well. Uh, you're going to have fans crossing, uh, you know, the border whenever they meet, on, on uh, whether it's a home-and-home home or whatever the case is, maybe a playoff series one time or another down the stretch. I think it's going to be fantastic for that area. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think there there are people in Vancouver, especially in the who are real fans of the Canucks, who see this as a bad thing because of, you know, it's drawing people away, it's splitting interest. I, there, to me, there's never a bad rivalry. No, not at all. I mean, you have two teams in New York. I mean, look at the L.A. and, and, and uh, a California market, and you know, whether it's the NFL or Major League Baseball. When you have teams that are close together, they sometimes share a fan base, or at least geographically share a fan base. You know, the White Sox and the Cubs are a great example of north side and south side. And that just creates some animosity, yes, but I think it creates that, you know, us versus them and, and – and, uh, you know, all in a good sense, we don't want to go to, you know, on, uh, on line brawls with the, the, the Seattle team and the Vancouver team. But I think it just creates that, uh, you know, us versus them. I think it just showcases that hometown pride when, when your team does, uh, does do well. Now, I, I am not going to begin a new discussion of the whole idea of Hamilton and an NHL team. Uh, it's not coming. It's not happening. So I, that's not where we're going with this. But I do find it interesting when you see a response like this today. The one thing that we've always had, other than a ready-made, although very antiquated now, arena, is that the one thing that's always been said about Hamilton as an NHL f- potential f- home is that we've got such interest here that nowhere else has the interest that we have. And I find this today, this response, really interesting because this suggests, yeah, you know what? I have no doubt that there would be tons of people in this area who would be massively interested in an, if an NHL team came here. But we're not standing alone on an island like that anymore. No, and and you know the thing is, it's hard to measure when you don't have you know events like these sort of ticket drives. You know, how do you measure the fandom in Quebec City versus Kansas City, or you know Seattle versus Houston, which has been mentioned you know, in NHL circles as well. Until you have these types of events where you're encouraging fans to say, hey, step up to the plate and put your name down and, and, you know, be accountable for, uh, you know, these tickets once, you know, this team comes here or if this team comes here. I think that's the only true way to measure kind of the excitement level in a particular city and and the appetite to host an NHL franchise because it it is a lot of work. It it is costly to go to each and every, uh, you know, hockey game. I went to a Leafs game about a month ago. And it's going to be the only game that I go to, you know, this year uh, because it's just too darn costly. And I just went myself because my daughter was at a concert uh, in Toronto. I thought, hey, I got three hours to kill when I go to the Leafs Ducks. Figured you uh, sold your son to be able to afford the ticket. <laughs> Basically, I didn't even tell him. I didn't even tell him I was doing. Yeah, that's probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. It, and, you know, yeah. It's a. Um, I also wonder. You know, the the person who gets. Once Seattle gets a team, and as I say, I'm positive, even before this, I was positive that they were getting a team. I, I just I didn't think they were going down this all this road and all this work for the NHL to say, ah, yeah, never mind. But once they get their team, you know who's got the worst job in the world? Who's that? The general manager of the Seattle team, because he's got to follow what they did in Vegas. <laughs> yes. Where they come as an expansion team and end up as almost first place overall. And you know what? No one else is going to ever do that again. And that guy's going to be held to that standard. And that's going to be brutal. 
yeah, it, it is going to be unfair. The, the only the only saving grace for that individual would be uh, that you know he comes out and says we're going to build our team differently because you know this Seattle team is probably not going to join the league until 2020 2021. So. You know, Vegas is having an outstanding season. I mean, no one really saw this coming. Who knows what they're going to do in the playoffs. But what happens next year and even the year after that? Are they going to be as good? And I know I'm putting mm. the cart before the horse. But, you know, that might give that Seattle GM a little breathing room in terms of, you know, how Vegas performs beyond the season. But, yeah, I'm not going to take anything away from the Golden Knights. They have blown, I think, everyone uh, away with, uh, you know, uh, exceed, greatly exceeding expectations. But the, it's you're, it's a terrific point you raise because you this whole buzz around Vegas, they're great on the ice, they've got a great, apparently, game day experience and everything else, and it's brand new, it's still got the new car smell, but what happens if in two years they return to what people expected and they are struggling once you've already had the success and that feeling of success, is it a lot harder to keep people's interest if you suddenly drop off? It's one thing to build. It's another thing to go the other direction. No doubt about it. I mean, you look at, I, I, I'm just going to pick a team out of the hat, the Colorado Avalanche, who moved from Quebec City, go to Colorado, win the Stanley Cup, and were dominant for you know a decade or even more than that, and have since fallen on hard times. I mean, they had it so good for so long, and they sold out each and every night, uh, you know, a couple of seasons ago, that sellout streak finally ended. And I think finally the the appetite to see a team that could not measure up to those glory teams from years ago. Uh, I think if it, it, it's kind of hard to say, but if Vegas wins the Stanley Cup this year, which who knows, it could happen. It could happen. I mean, th- that might be the best and the worst thing to happen to that franchise because fans will either say, "All right, now we're, we're expecting to win each and every year, and we'll be disappointed <laughs> each and every year," or they go into the next season thinking, eh, I've already seen them win the Cup. I'm good. I think a lot of Toronto fans might actually be <laughs> homicidal if Vegas wins in their first year in the league. That's probably an accurate statement. Uh, okay, just before we go, though, speaking of fans that may be happy, fans that may not be happy, last year, you will recall, everybody listening will recall, when spring rolled around and the Stanley Cup playoffs began, five of the seven, if I'm correct, five of the seven Canadian teams were in the playoffs. I believe I can't remember who the two were that were not in the playoffs. Now I'm drawing a blank. Vancouver and Vancouver and Calgary. Vancouver and Calgary, maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. Or Vancouver and Winnipeg. Winnipeg, yes. Winnipeg missed by one point. You're right. Vancouver and Winnipeg. This year, you look at the standings. Uh, Arizona's dead last. Buffalo is right after them. Then you have Ottawa, Vancouver, Montreal, Edmonton, and Calgary is also up considerably higher, but sitting out of a playoff spot. But How is it possible, and we always come back to this, how is it possible that Canadian markets, with all the money, with all the fans, with all the everything that you possibly could have to build a winner, how is it possible that so many teams are so awful? It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, two years ago, none of the seven made it. Right. For the the first time, you know, uh, since the expansion era. It's, you know, obviously the NHL is ultra-competitive. There is a ton of parity. But not only are five potentially at least uh, I, I doubt Calgary's going to make it but let's just say five Canadian based NHL teams don't make it this year um, how can it go from five who make it to five who don't in a span of one year is, is parity that great I, I'm not quite sure because you know Montreal right now is a tire fire uh, Edmonton uh, I think they're just looking for answers there and I'm not sure what the answer is uh, Winnipeg's been outstanding the Leafs have been uh, you know uh, incredible as well this year 
Um, and, and Ottawa is a team that, you know, went all the way to the conference finals last year, and I know I've lost a couple of pieces and have been very disappointed. Uh, and Vancouver's, you know, in a rebuild. I don't think they were expected to make the playoffs this year uh, anyways. When you look at the teams, they really haven't changed that much from one year to the next, you know, again, save for a couple of players here and there. When it comes to parity, you know, that that's obviously, uh, you know, things that every team has to deal with, but uh, I don't think it's that great of a, of a jump to go from five teams making it to five teams not making it. And the five teams who made it last year, I mean, they made it rather comfortably, really. Well, and that's that's why the parity thing I find yeah. I have a hard time with, because if it was that you had all these teams and they're two or three or four points out of a playoff spot and they're not all going to get in, that's one thing. Yeah, they'd be all in the mix. These teams all stink now. Yeah. I mean, the four of them do anyway. The four of them do. Edmonton is now looking at down the fact that in New Jersey, they're talking about Taylor Hall possibly as the <laughs> Hart Trophy winner, as the league MVP, yeah. and they gave him up for a guy, a defenseman, who's not playing all that well. Montreal, as you say, is a mess. Vancouver was expected to be a mess. Ottawa, who knows what's going on in Ottawa, especially if they trade Eric Carlson. And the irony of all this is the one Canadian franchise that everybody says can't succeed because nobody wants to go there because it's 12 million degrees below zero every day except for four every year. They have in July, they go above zero four times, is Winnipeg. And, And Winnipeg is if there's going to be a Canadian team that wins the cup this year, and I've, it's been a long time, it's probably Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and you know, you look at the roster, and really, what has changed from one year to the next? They still have line A. You know, Shifley was missing for five, six, seven weeks this year because of an injury. Uh, you know, Bufflin's still there, uh, uh, Wheeler's still there, uh, Nikolai Ehlers. I mean, they have some really good, you know, Tyler Myers, really good players. The one missing link that Winnipeg has not had since really the days of Bob Essence, I think, was goaltending. Mm. Connor Hellebuck this year has been, I think he's one of the Vezina Trophy candidates. You know, him, uh, Vasilevsky in Tampa Bay, and, and probably Frederick Anderson in Toronto, uh, with apologies to Sergei Bobrovsky. But uh, I think Hellebuck has really been the guy that kind of glue to put them over the top. And, you know, this is a team, really, I wouldn't be surprised if they went into the first round of the playoffs and lost that first round. I don't think they will, but I, again, I wouldn't be surprised if they lost in four, five, six, or seven games to whoever they play in the first round. I hope it doesn't happen. I'm cheering for them in the West, but uh, again, come playoff time, anything can happen, so I wouldn't be surprised. You're putting Jimmy Waite ahead of Fred Brathwaite? <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to... How about, uh, let's see, who? how about Gary Suitcase Smith? He was with them oh, for a while when they yeah. first arrived. Doug Sotart. That's going way back. Doug Sotart was Curry there. Kari Lettinen, if you're going back to the Atlanta Thrasher days. A uh, Pokey Reddick. Don't <laughs> yes. forget Pokey Reddick. And and my personal favorite, Dan Bouchard. Do you know why Dan Bouchard is my favorite Winnipeg goalie of all time? Because I own a pair of Dan Bouchard's skates. No way. Yeah, he had a pair of custom-made skates made once upon a time. I used to play goal, and he never came and picked them up. At least this is what the store told me. <laughs> and I bought them, and they said he never came and got them. So oh, your, wow. your feet are the same. So he immediately became my favorite goalie. I don't think he was ever any good after I got his skates. I think I threw him off. But <laughs> the voodoo. If, if Winnipeg does not win the Stanley Cup this year, it's because I have Dan Bouchard's skates. Or that, uh, or, or they lost to Toronto in the final. That we- <laughs> <laughs> Rick Zamper, appreciate you doing this. Thank you, sir. Anytime. Take care. Uh, quick update before we go to our breaks here. Uh, the snow is still, well, we're still waiting. Although Mike wrote in and he says there is now snow starting to fall by St. Joseph's Hospital. He says we are close. This is a good line by Mike. We are close to being able to declare this the worst snow experience in people kind. 
Mike, apparently a big fan of our prime minister. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.